I find it fascinating. Does a person actually with two running legs, uh, you know, blades, do they actually have an, a, a, an advantage over somebody that does not? And that's, so usually I answer that question by saying, well, why don't you just cut your legs off and let's find out. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! They're all completely gassed! They've given it everything on the global bucket! Oh, yeah! Oh! Oh! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? I'm feeling very out of sorts. How come? Because it's October, mm -hmm. so I should be getting ready for the World Gymnastics, which wouldn't be happening this year normally, but is. And ice skating should be starting, and it kind of is. Everything is sort of happening and not the way it should be, and I'm just – my October is very not the way it's supposed to be in terms of my sports watching. I hear you. And anytime sport does happen – it's just kind of like amazing. I was watching TV with Ben and I forget what what day it was, but it was this weekend and we're just flipping through something and then all of a sudden I was just like, football's on, football, football. And he just looked at me like I was insane and had to turn on football for me. I'm so torn because on the one hand, I want to see all these events. And on the other hand, I'm so concerned about everyone involved and the traveling. and <laughs> mm -hmm. Because it's been hit and miss. I think there have been some sporting events that have been successful, like the National Basketball Association here had its bubble and the WNBA also had a bubble. But American football has been traveling. Some stadiums have no fans. Some have some fans, some have more fans, and now we're starting to see cases pop up among the athletes. So I don't know. So and Russia had its figure skating test event, but not everybody was there, and other countries have canceled their nationals and their test event. So it'll be strange to kind of see how. Last year, the figure skating world championships were canceled. Those don't usually happen until March. So it'll be interesting to see how the skating progresses during the season because Grand Prix is happening but not happening in its normal way. But we are getting to see programs and people complaining about, oh, no, we have another Carmen. Oh, no, we have another Black Swan. What movie did they pull that music from? What were they thinking? So that part of figure skating is happening. So that that does feed my soul a little bit. <laughs> I know biathlon will be starting up relatively soon in the next couple of months, but they're doing a, a shorter season. And they took out one venue and made that weekend's races at the venue before. So it'll be two weekends at the same venue, and then they move on. So they're trying to tighten up their travel. So in biathlon, will the North Americans be going to Europe and then quarantining? I don't know if they'll quarantine. I, I imagine they'll go because Claire just went because she had some meetings and she competed in that city biathlon. Right. So, but she came back. And she did come back. So I'm imagining that they'll probably go over and figure it figure it out. And then just stay there because I know sometimes right. they'll come back and forth. But not this year. Things are weird. Let's move on to today's guest. We talked with John Register. John competed at the 1996 Paralympics in swimming and then the 2000 Paralympics in long jump, where he got an American record of 5.41 meters and took the silver medal. He also competed in the 100 and 200 meters there and got fifth in each event. He's currently a keynote and motivational speaker, and he does uh, LinkedIn Live sessions on Thursdays at 312 Mountain Time. So... We were supposed to talk to John for a while and had some confusion with a new platform that we're trying to record on and getting connected. So we didn't have very long to talk, but we wanted to share this with you because we wanted 
to have part of our conversation talk about running blades and how they work and what they're made out of because we need to know more about parasports and how they work. So John was very gracious and talked with us about running blades. We are hoping to connect with him soon and talk more about his story and his experiences at Atlanta and Sydney because his whole story will blow your mind, really. So, uh, but this little bit of a conversation uh, is also pretty mind-blowing as well. Take a listen. But let's get some technology stuff out of the way. Okay. What are running blades made out of? Running blades are made primarily out of carbon fiber. The carbon fiber is flexible enough and gives a little bit of buoyancy to energy store and energy return. doesn't give that much return back, but there it does energy store. Uh, so if you think about an ankle muscle or an ankle firing uh, when we naturally run, we can flex the ankle through the Achilles tendon and then power off of that foot. Uh, whereas with the the power, you cannot generate that power uh, with no inertia being put on that blade. So when you when the athlete pushed power into the ground through the blade, it will then energy store it and then return that back. And sometimes you can get that to come back faster than an ankle would do. But but from the from the start, you. There's no, you can't generate that until you actually start getting in motion. So when I've seen people run on blades, it almost looks like they bounce a little bit. Is that what you're talking about with the return? Right. So you'll see, you'll see it differently for different individuals as they kind of bounce or spring down the, the track. And, and we do the same thing when we're running. We're just creating it through the foot, ankle, knee, in, you know, all the biomechanics that we have to run, because we know that in running, we need three things to produce speed. And that is, we want to have uh, stride length, stride frequency, and power into the ground. So that's the, you know, we're, we're trying to mimic that through the, uh, the prosthetic. So a lot of times when people are on blades, or even one blade, it, it seems to go out slightly in an arc to the side. What is what because I would think it would still go straight laterally like the mechanics of the step yeah the mechanics of the step look a little not like a step yeah so what's happening there there's there's two things one is you have the human body is designed to operate in linear expression so going forward right we're going forward down the track if we're running running hurdles whatever the whatever it might be when you begin to when you lose a, a limb you're compensating with you know kind of just think think of a peg leg what would a peg leg do underneath your <laughs> your your rear stump if you were running down the track it's going to go where the leg naturally wants to go our muscles and tendons just hold everything in place when we have two limbs or no, or, or, you know, one leg, whatever it might be. So we we're symmetrical. So we're trying to get the leg to do just that. When you walk, it's very different than when you run. Uh, and so when you, when you're walking, your knees are not coming up that high, you know, you're kind of more shuffling around uh, and you're doing pretty much a heel strike to toe off. When you're running, you're pretty much on the, on the, the, the knees are coming up higher uh, and sprinting, they're almost parallel to the ground. And, and longer distance running, they're they're more kind of forty five degree angle to the ground. But when you when that leg strikes the ground, it's actually bouncing to to push you forward in motion. You know, you kind of heel off and go forward. With that prosthetic, you're not getting um, the the leg coming in, in natural motion because it's it's a part of you that's attached to you rather than working in symmetry with you. So if you don't have a knee, that knee is only a, a very static mechanical knee. It's not going to work the way a normal knee actually works. So what you get is this whip effect that will happen with the lower portion of the limb kind of flying out and then getting aligned again. If you think about how the hips will move in motion uh, as we run, when that leg goes back and then you try to bring it forward, we can control the that that swing of our lower portion of the limb whereas with the artificial leg you can't control that it's going to whip or go out or in depending upon where you have aligned it so what what processes prosthetists uh what i 
share with them to to do that when they're going from a running or a walking prosthesis to a, a running one is to make sure that that leg is aligned at the athlete's top end performance because it might not look well or walk well as you walk but when you run you want it to be in the most optimum because that's the the highest the highest end is what you want right you want to be at the optimum at your at your highest rate of speed and then you come kind of come down it's like the you know the sr71 it's, it was a kind of the highest plane that ever flew kind of flew into the ether space area uh, it was called the blackbird and it leaked fuel on the ground and the reason for that was because once it got up into the stratosphere the skin of the the aircraft would then seal because of the pressure that was up there. So it didn't act the way it, it could fly really on the ground because it, it was leaking all over the place. But when it got up into, into space, that's when it could actually act at its optimum. So you want to act, athletes want to act at their optimum when they're running on artificial limbs. How does the bend in the blade factor into all of this? So we can use different when a leg is made there is in the in the um what do you call it uh the curvature of it you can set that in production to the category for the athlete so i'm a heavier person you know um about when i was running about 200 pounds 196 pounds so i'm putting a lot of force into that leg so I want it to be a little more stiff. I don't want it to be loosey-goosey, right? So when they make it, I might push the category to category seven, to category eight, so I get a faster return on that limb. Somebody else that might be lighter and is not going to give that much force may want to go down to a category three, category four. And so as they're making these very customized pores of these, these molds, you can choose what it is that you want based upon kind of how active you are and how much you pressure you think that you're going to put into that leg. Uh, it's really fascinating to see, you know, the science. And we we all we often will go into what is called what I call does a does a person I find it fascinating does a person actually with two running legs, uh, you know, blades do they actually have an, a, an advantage over somebody that does not? And that's so usually I answer that question by saying, well, why don't you just cut your legs off and let's find out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it kind of, you know, we can have all these arguments and stuff around it, but that's why I think Paralympics and Olympics are two, even though they're parallel, they're the parallel game to the Olympics. They fit in the categories of what people are capable of because we want, we want to compare apples and apples right um and that's and that even even inside the, the games themselves we want to compare apples and apples so when i ran the paralympic games in 2000 and ran against the you know the the world's best 100 meters and 200 meters and long jump i knew out out of the gate there was no way i was going to be able to compete with these individuals uh, that were above the knee amputees. And the reason I knew that was because I am actually a true above the knee amputee, which means I don't have a knee platform to weight bear on. Whereas the, the, the other people in the competition were through the knee amputees, which means they can actually weight bear on the bottom portion of that stump. And if we know anything, when we know things about running, we start talking about the the biomechanics of it and the physics of it. I have less power to put into the ground than the other athletes do because they can weight bear on the bottom portion of, of their stump and I cannot. I actually generate mine from the hip. So that's a, I'm losing about a foot lever on them. So there's no way I can keep up with them. It's just, it's just, unless they're just not a great athlete. I can't keep up. So the Earl Connors or, you know, he was phenomenal. He won the 100 meters. Uh, Lucas Christian, who was second in that competition, they're all through the knee amputees. And then so when we got to the long jump, though, I knew that the speed I could generate down the long jump runway on my artificial leg and understanding the biomechanics and physics of long jump, because I was a 27 foot long jumper in college, I knew I could probably catch them. 
I knew I had a better shot in the long jump than I did in the 100 and 200. And that was before I even put the running leg on to even begin the competition, just understanding the, the biomechanics of, of running uh, and the physics of it all. What leg do you take off on for your long jump? I take off on my sound side. So I say, if you, if you have it, use it, <laughs> you know, and I really think uh, my own personal opinion is jumping off the prosthetic limb. If you don't have a sound leg to jump off of, like in this in long jump is uh, what I call, are we measuring the athlete's performance or are we measuring the technology's performance? And that's that's a difference uh, between it. And that's an argument that we can have all over the, the place, because like I said, I can set that that leg in the mold to respond faster than my ankle ever could. So if I put myself in the right position to jump, if I know how to jump and I can do the penultimate step and put my leg in that position and power off of it, I can literally kind of pole vault spring myself to a, a longer jump because I can keep the momentum going forward for a longer period of time, uh, for a shorter period of time. So Did it's, you um, have to switch takeoff legs from when I you- had, I had to switch my takeoff yeah. leg. So I was a left leg jumper. And so I always say, if I would have had my, my right leg amputated, Lucas Christen would never have had a chance because the world record would have been gone. <laughs> Doggone it. <laughs> when you're jumping, and because you are an above the knee amputee, is it harder to get the the leg with the blade around because it's coming from the hip? Beautiful question. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, my coach, his name is uh, Remy Corchimney. And uh, so when we first started trying to figure it out how to get the leg around so it, it, it wouldn't stay back, mm -hmm. I could get it to the place where I wanted it and, you know, jump off the other leg and all that stuff. I, I was always hitting my other leg, right? My sound leg and damaging, cutting my, uh, my ankle or cutting the skin because it would hit it. And he would always say, John, this is your punishment. <laughs> Do it right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now, do the feet, for lack of a better word, of the a blade, is it different length? Like, do you have different length of the extended part of it for different heights? So it, it, it really depends on how tall the athlete is. And what now, what now they have is the mast. So if you're a double leg symmetrical amputee they measure or are supposed to be measuring what your normal height would have been without if, if you would have had two limbs uh, -huh. uh it's it's really suspect to me because some of the people that i've seen run uh they look disproportionate with when the mast hits them they, they go every almost everybody goes short unless it's the country that's measuring and they get their athletes a little taller right so it's, it's yeah, uh it's, it's just other ways that we can, uh, you know, <laughs> game the system. And I think that would also be affected if you were, for for instance, an adult amputee and you know what that person's height was prior to the right. amputation versus someone who either lost limbs as a young child or was born without. So or if got you look at, right, or if you look at like a double leg amputee to a single leg amputee and you would say, okay, if I, if my other leg was gone, what would my mast be? What would it, would it be? And so if it's shorter than the leg that you're, that I currently have on to make myself symmetrical, then there's something wrong with the system. So there's a lot that goes into all this, right? It's, you know, it's, 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 it's really kind of crazy and we don't have a lot of classifiers in the United States, you know, very few. So we are kind of the short end of the stick, <laughs> no pun intended, to, uh, <laughs> to uh, when we're, when they're developing or measuring U.S. athletes. It's, uh, it's kind of a challenge. Wow. How many different legs do you have for a competition? I, I just have the one, right? Um, it's, so I usually just take one off and put the, I have a walking leg and I have a running leg. That's what I generally okay. do there are athletes that will have just the lower componentry to it because not for me at being an above the amputee i have to have two things one i have to have the foot the blade we're calling it today and i have to have a knee 
because the knee is mechanical. I can't, I have to run with a knee or not. You know, I don't, you can't generate the most power or fluidity if you don't have the knee. But there are those that don't run with the knee, like in marathons and stuff, because of just because it takes a little more effort and power. So you'll see people running with straight legs that don't have a, a knee. Wow. Okay. To be continued, because <laughs> we both have to hop off. Now we have a million more questions. For you, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Paralympics is fascinating. I oh, mean, it, it is. It is incredible. And so, yeah, we're really excited to be able to learn more about it. And yeah, uh, it's. it's so my leg, the leg now is in the museum. Yeah. Did you know this, Allison? His leg is in the, the new Paralympic. The new and Paralympic, and Olympic Paralympic Museum. It's kind of crazy. I, I walked and I saw it for the first time. Like, oh, my God. That looks familiar. Oh, that's my leg. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I want it back. No. Uh, <laughs> one one last question. How how much do these things cost? Because I always have to ask. Uh, they're all over the map. So it's all markup prices. If you're looking at the kind of the baseline without the markup price, uh, a mechanical knee that I was wearing on that time, probably about 35K. Holy so cow. You took the whole the whole setup, right? The materials uh, from the socket to the componentry was about 35. What I wear today as a as a just get around leg uh, is probably closer to 70, 75K. <gasps> Holy cow. Yeah. So you think about two, if you have to have two of those, you know, 150,000. Wow. Yeah, it's, it can get quite... Quite pricey. Thank you so much, John. Check out John's website at johnregister.com. You can follow him on Instagram at John F. Register. On Twitter, he's JF Register. On Facebook, he's John F. Register. And he also has a YouTube channel, John Register. On October 13th, John is taking part in a panel called Disability in Sports as part of the University of Rhode Island's Honors Colloquium, Disability in the 21st Century. Uh, this panel will be a virtual discussion on Tuesday the 13th at 7 p.m. And we will have a link to the lecture in the show notes if you want to check it out. So I got to say, even though we got to talk to John for only about 20 minutes or so, it this was fascinating. And, and we could go another tight hour just on blade technology. Whenever we get into technology of any, when we've talked about bobsleds, when we've talked about, when we talked to Shiva about how his luge was created, anytime we get into the technology of sports, because it's so foreign to me, I'm always surprised and I'm surprised at how fascinated I am because I'm not a science person. I'm a story person. And yet I kind of want to go to a factory now. I know I do. I want to get a, a, a prosthetics maker on to talk about these. How do you make these things and fit it? And, you know, just like any equipment, obviously, some people are going to be really fussy and some people are going to be easier and, and have it, do they like it tighter or looser or all those dynamics to it? Right. And how long do they last? Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. I was more thinking because I asked him, how many do you have? You know, what if it gets lost in transit? <laughs> right. Somebody, I mean, I assume you wear your walking leg, but you still have to bring your running leg. Can you bring that on the plane? Can that be a carry-on? I don't know. And and does that depend on how long that is? Well, it's it's not that tall, so it could fit in the overhead bin, maybe. But it's like having any kind of instrument. You don't want to check that. Right. But it's not like you can't you can't bring your surfboard or canoe online. You know, we talked with, when we talked with Luca, she can't bring her kayak on the plane with her. She has to have that checked. So I worry about what happens and, you know, do you lean out the window to make sure your leg gets on the plane? Could you imagine a plane full of Paralympians and just legs falling all out of the baggage cart thing? But yes, this was a great. And uh, we are looking forward to talking with John in the near future. If you have any questions for John about para running and uh, prosthetics, let us know and we'll put them on our question list with set flame alive pod at gmail.com. Speaking of traveling. Yeah. Let's check in with our team. Welcome to Shukflistan. One of our newer citizens of Shukflistan, AJ Edelman has set up a GoFundMe to enable the Israeli bobsled team to train this year. The team's goal is you know, we talk about how, how expensive this stuff is. The team's goal is 2.75 million. 
And AJ has said that if they can raise 150000 they will have a raffle of unique Olympic items, including his uniform from Pyeongchang and his Team Israel Olympic ring, which is pretty swanky. So you can learn more at GoFundMe.com slash F slash Israel Bobsled. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. After four seasons, Jackie Wong is stepping away from hosting the Ice Talk podcast. I did see that. I told them you have a microphone and you're good to go. I am ready. <laughs> we can talk Black Swan and Carmen all day. <laughs> and how feathers do not belong on ice skating costumes. Because they fall on the ice and then Well, yeah, and then to... you had to, yeah. Then those poor little girls need to go out, you know, along with collecting the flowers and the stuffed animals, they can fall over the feathers. Right. Our archivist, Terry Hedgepith, has her own Etsy shop of thoughtfully curated antiques. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's called Vintage Merchant Company, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. October 6th was Dawn Harper Nelson Day, according to Dawn. She has a challenge to everyone to hurdle something throughout the day and uh, make a video of it. But I do want to say she did end Dawn Harper Nelson Day by picking up some ice cream. Oh, well, that's good, too. That's a nice way to celebrate. So I said, if if we could have Oreos on Tessagobo Day, you got to jump over something to get to your ice cream on Dawn Harper Nelson Day. I can make that happen. <gasps> we can combine them and have Oreo ice cream. <gasps> and you could jump over something into your bed to take a nap. You could jump over an oar. There you go. I could jump over an oar laying on the floor. I mean... <laughs> A hurdle is, like, up to my shoulders, so that ain't happening. (laughs) Our modern pentathlete, uh, Samantha Schultz, was profiled on Team USA's Tokyo Tuesday featured this past week. So it's all about things she's learned while she's uh, been in the sport and as part of the Army. And then finally, Tony Azevedo, our water polo player, has his own podcast now, the Tony Azevedo Podcast, which is all about the ins and outs of the water polo world, and he co-hosts it with comedian Dave Williamson. So if you are into learning more about the water polo community, check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Very appropriate name. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know, keep it simple, Tony. Just go straight forward. Let's talk some USOPC news. Uh, this is kind of interesting because it has potential to do harm. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill called the Empowering Olympic, Paralympic, and Amateur Athletes Act of 2020. The Senate has passed this bill as well, so it's sitting on the president's desk for signature or veto by the 13th of October. So it, the it's an, a reform bill that's supposed to provide more oversight of coaches and executives following a lot of abuse scandals that we've had here in the United States. The problem is that it could be seen by the IOC as government having too much control over the National Olympic Committee, which then could compel the IOC to ban the U.S. from participating in the Olympics. So we'll see. And and that's a whole slippery slope of what could happen. Um, I don't think they would actually say, Team USA, you can't come. I think if the bill gets signed and the IOC decides to ban the United States, that would likely be a situation where the Team USA would compete under the Olympic flag. Not fun, but it's not like they wouldn't be there. Right. The problem here is not that the United States government wants there to be better protections for athletes. That is all of our goals. You know, we we have spoken out more than once about abuses of coaches and kids not being protected and all of that. The problem is that we as Americans tend to be very narrowly focused. And we forget that if we can pass a law that says, the U.S. government can oversee the USOPC, then every dictatorship and every banana republic and every questionable government can do the same. And then if those dictatorships or various other forms of government could force their Olympic committees to do some nefarious doping, bribing, and then the IOC has no say over that because It's the government activities within its own country. Right. So as much as we as Americans absolutely need to protect our athletes more, having the government 
control the USOPC is not the way to do it. Yes. So we'll see what happens. I imagine that this bill will actually be enacted and we'll have to see what the fallout is. Right. I wonder if this is all like so many things in politics, especially right now in the United States, is all just theater and grandstanding. Could be. And then everything can get thrown out the window in November after the elections. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know, because if this bill becomes a law, then what do you do? Right. And is it going to be a law that then leads to a discussion that then the IOC makes reforms that this law then is no longer valid? Could be. Or I, I can't see the IOC making reforms as much as as the U.S. government saying, oops, we better amend this. Right. Because, again, I think that the reason that they're pushing so hard on this is they're having too U.S.-centric a view on what this means for National Olympic Committees. Yeah. I don't think that is understood as much as the concern to make sure there are safeguards in place so that abuse stops. So we'll see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. So at least, so at least the IOC can be mad at us, along with the Italians, <laughs> along with you know some other countries. Well, you know, we'll just spread the anger around. Let's see what's going on with Tokyo 2020. This week, the IOC Executive Board met and they got a report from the Tokyo Commission talking in more details about the cost savings that the organizing committee has identified. So they figure that it's going to be about $280 million in cost savings. Some examples, they said, were uh, reviewing the temporary overlay specifications and other venue equipment, uh, reduce service levels, the look of the games in venues and in the villages. They're going to optimize the Tokyo 2020 Olympic torch relay operations, but not cut short the relay because the relay calendar got released as well. And then uh, they will encourage stakeholders to optimize their delegation working in Tokyo and probably cut back on staffing plans for the organizing committee as well. I think the big thing will be cutting down on the officials. Oh, absolutely. And not just the officials, but just all your entourage that's coming. Mm -hmm. And the entourage bit is interesting because does that put you on a more level playing field if you're from a country with a, a smaller delegation or lack of budget to be able to bring your physio, your massage person and five other, you know, five other people to come with you and take care of your health while you're there? Does that make that that more even or are athletes just going to foot more of the bill for those people to come? Right. Because is it not that fewer people will actually come? It's just fewer people will be paid for by the committees. Right. Or are you really, in fact, creating a greater separation of the have and the have nots because you've got somebody like Simone Biles who has you know, a lot of money at her fingertips from sponsorships and she can afford to bring her whole team. You know, the, the, the gymnast from the Netherlands can't afford to bring her own team. Right. So are you in fact making it harder for smaller teams? But the thing that really strikes me on this is this temporary overlay and the look of the venues. Mm -hmm. So does this mean we're not going to have rings everywhere? I don't know. I wonder what they had already finished. You know, did they have, were printers already starting to print up banners and and things like that? So they had that stuff in a warehouse somewhere. You never know. Yeah, because... I would not be surprised if they started in January. Let's start printing stuff. We got a lot of venues and a lot of stuff we want to do to them. And we'll just store it until, because it's a lot of work to put all this together. But I, I wonder, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if they cut down on maybe flashy electronic stuff that they were going to put in place much closer to the games. Or maybe things that were, I mean, because so many of their venues are multi-purpose and being used for things now before and after the games so that all that branding for the Olympics was all temporary because you can't use that for a different event. So if they're just not going to put that branding 
in except, you know, on the basketball court, there'll be the rings, but it won't be all around the arena. I'm just curious as to what that really means, because I'm thinking about, you know, when you watch the events, all the sideboards, all the padding, all the, you know, in the tennis courts, every court is branded, for lack of a better word. Are they just going to skip that? But that's part of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what is done and not done. Maybe they focus on the venue's field of play versus like the concourses. Right. Or an entrance, something that not isn't necessarily going to be on TV. Right. Well, definitely on all the pitches, they'll have the chalk rings because that's cheap and easy. Even <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> Go out there with a little spray can of chalk. I'll put them on there. I'll do it for free, man. I'll even buy my own chalk spray. <laughs> All right. Well, you got that covered. I'm here for you, Tokyo. <laughs> the organizing committee says they'll be able to rework their budgets by the end of the year. And the budget's going to include costs for COVID-19 countermeasures. So basically, when uh, we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about what T-Box said at, uh, happened at the EB meeting, but basically there was a lot of, we're putting more tools into our coronavirus toolbox, and they did not give any concrete answers on a lot of stuff. But speaking of cuts to the games, another IOC member went a little rogue. <gasps> we have a new rogue member? Gunilla Lindbergh from Sweden, who is part of the, the Stockholm bid. So she oh, she's gave, still mad now. So she, well, I don't she's know. Just, oh, I, oh. So okay. she talked to Aftonbladet, which is a Swedish news outlet, and said that, and, and I had to do this through Google Translate, so, so bear with me here. So they have, the thing about the Tokyo Organizing Committee, now they don't just have a plan B, they have a plan B, C, D, E, and F. She did say that one of the cuts that could most likely be happening is that athlete field trips will be taken away. What does that mean? Do you remember from when we were talking about the Montreal Olympic Village and they had different field trips for the athletes during the games? Like they could go go to different sites in the city and the, the organizing committee would pay for that? I didn't realize they did that anymore. I didn't realize it either. and uh, But that's probably not going to happen. So that's a little bit of savings. And she did say that uh, 6,000 more journalists have applied for accreditation for Tokyo compared to Rio. And she said there will not be 6,000 more journalists for sure. Well, that would be COVID safety. Never mind. Yeah, cost. exactly. But I'm sure when you, well, when you accredit a journalist, you basically give them tickets to everything. Right. And you give them access to the the facility, the, the journalism facilities, because I know they have internet access. And in the old days, it was fax machines and connections. And so, yeah, so that would 6,000 more. Yes, this Olympics wow. is insanely popular. Well, people didn't want to go to Rio. People want to go to Tokyo, right? Just as a city. Well, and it's interesting, because not only do they have a press center for the accredited journalists. This is something that was started in Sydney, I believe. They have another press center for journalists who didn't get accreditation, but that is set up so that they have a place to work at least and can get some information too. But um, for now, because I had signed up for that and was working on my accreditation before, they shut it down for the time being. So it'll be interesting to see what of that comes back if anything, I wouldn't be surprised if they said, hey, this is a nice to have, not a have to have, and, and you couldn't get accreditation. Sorry, but we can't provide this service. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And I would think that that would then discourage some independent journalists from going at all, which would then also cut the numbers down, which is something that Tokyo seems to want to do. You know, like the, the cancellation of the field trips and the limiting of press accreditation is a coronavirus countermeasure mm -hmm. in addition to being a cost savings so hey there you go two birds one stone effectively using your your cuts exactly so Gunilla said that the games are going to be different but she said they're not necessarily going to get worse they could get better which I think is true I think sometimes the pressure of 
being bigger and better every game gets to be overwhelming and you start thinking of just the craziest stuff and it just goes way overboard to what you really do need to have a very special experience for the athletes. You know, a lot of people that we've spoken to who have been to many, many Olympics talk about Lillehammer. I realize that's a winter games, but how fantastic Lillehammer was because of how close and personal and small it felt. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to get back to that feeling of we're all together. Right. But not right now, because now we have to stay six feet apart. (laughs) Don't be that close. (laughs) Uh, Tokyo also released a virtual experience of their 55 sport videos. So those are more point of view videos of all the sports that they'll go through the entire program. And they did announce that the torch relay will start on March 25th in Fukushima Prefecture. And it's basically going to be the same route as before, just a different day for everything. And then finally, Finland has opened Metsa Pavilion. And that is, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, Manu. But that is going to be, uh, it's on the Finnish uh, embassy. And it's going to be like the Finland house in Tokyo for its athletes. Yeah, so it's a pavilion built with industrially manufactured wooden elements and it they built it in like 10 days. It was Scandinavian efficiency. Yes, exactly. So it it looks a very clean and fresh and modern and it'll be the home base for Finnish national teams during the games. Sounds like Scandinavian architecture as well. Exactly. So, uh let's move over to Paris 2024. Speaking of the cost cutting that's going on in in Tokyo, Paris has announced some cost control measures as well, which our friend Rich Perlman in the Sports Examiner posted. I think we mentioned this before, but the temporary venues for swimming and water polo and volleyball is not going, they are not going to be built. They're going to use existing facilities for that. They are moving rugby sevens to the Stade de France, so the Stade Jean Bouin will not be used cutting one of the football venues so they will have seven venues instead of eight and then they're going to move the climbing facility and create a permanent site for that and then they're also going to use an existing facility in Lille. So they are really looking at their list of venues and cutting back where they can. It's amazing where you can suddenly find all this money when you need to. Right. And, oh, we don't need to build these temporary venues. We have stuff that will work. Hmm. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see where else they will be cutting and when we'll start hearing about that. Because we will start, I mean, in having a year added on to Tokyo, that's a year less that you're going to hear about Paris. Is that good? Is that bad? Are, Are people not going to pay as much attention and be watchdogs? Or what? All right, let's check in with what else happened at the IOCEB meeting. Okay, so... So, wait. Yes. EB, executive board. Yes. Don't be all fancy. Sorry, sorry. So the executive board meant. T-Box said in his press conference that they focused mostly on Tokyo 2020. He said some interesting things about the situations going on with the International Weightlifting Federation and uh, AIBA, the Boxing Federation. So IWF has been in trouble because of their anti-doping issues and their governance problems. And uh, T-Box said that the IWF is making good progress on the anti-doping front. They're addressing uh, allegations from the McLaren report. They've contracted with the International Testing Agency to uh, for their anti-doping tests. So that's going very well. So what happens is they may establish this link between the number of quota spots for the games and the anti-doping measures. On the governance front, T-Box said they have strong concerns. And... Yeah, like, and you know when T-Box says, like, I perk up when T-Box says the IOC has strong concerns about something, because they usually don't. But uh, they said there's a lack of progress in reforms, a lack of acceptance of independent advice, the athlete representation within the federations, not so great. So they are 
currently reviewing the event program and quota places for Paris 2024, and they reserve the right to take further measures, which means basically they have no problem pulling it from the program in Paris if the IWF doesn't get its act together. Yikes. Yeah, I know. I'm and on the one hand, I'm I'm glad that they're seeing progress on the anti-doping front. On the other hand, I don't I don't know. The the governance of the International Weightlifting Federation has been pretty autocratic. Problematic? Yeah, problematic, <laughs> autocratic. Both are true. Yeah, and I wonder how much progress can they truly make on the doping issue if the governance doesn't have better visibility. I don't know. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm glad on the, like, I, I agree. I'm glad on the doping because, you know, I have said we need to drop weightlifting from the Olympic program because it doesn't seem like the sport can function without doping. Right. And if it could, if you could get that culture back, then maybe bring it back because it's then a I'm all beautiful for it. sport to watch. Right. We talked to someone yesterday who convinced me how beautiful weightlifting is. And how exciting it is. And I thought, and I thought to myself as I was listening to her, I was like, oh, I feel really bad about all the horrible things I've said about weightlifting. And then on the other hand, I realized I'm not saying horrible things about weightlifting. I'm saying horrible things about dopers. They just happen to be concentrated in this sport right now. Not that other sports don't have doping problems. But when we're wiping out podium after podium after podium because of doping violations, we got to get this cleaned up. Right. It doesn't bode well for the Olympics. It, it makes their image be very tarnished when you have to constantly reallocate medals because so many athletes have doped. They also talked about the AIBA, the Boxing Association. Uh, they are very worried about the lack of progress to the governance reforms that uh, they're supposed to implement. So we'll see about that one, too. Did they talk at all about what's happening with world sailing? No, they did not talk about what because that governance is also having issues with their presidential election. So I'm surprised he didn't bring that up, given this context. I think maybe it's a new development. It is. Uh, the IOC is also working on a situation in Belarus where athletes are claiming discrimination from the National Olympic Committee for some political views that is in stages of communication. So there's not a ton of action going there, but they did report that, that yes, we are talking with Belarus about uh, the situation. When they're trying to figure out what the truth is, it sounded like to me. Well, you know, that's actually very, very timely to what we were just talking about, where the U.S. government is trying to pass a law that the government can oversee the U.S. OPC. Because now if you put that law in Belarus and they're already having a problem where athletes are claiming discrimination because of political views, the more you have a government involved in the Olympic Committee, the more things like that are going to come up. So when you put it in Belarus or some of these other countries, all of a sudden you realize where the IOC is coming from, saying to the United States, you can't do that. Right, right, right. So something to look out for. Okay, so then they had a Q&A session, and I have to say that I think the most, I don't want to say incendiary, but I think the the thing that shocked me the most is what T-Box said at the very end of the conference. And I, I am stunned. I, I I don't even know what to say, but this, this is a quote. I had to listen to this for a few times. He was saying goodbye to everyone on the call, and he said, I would like to wave at you but our communications department has told me that this would be very old-fashioned, so I would rather not do it. So I just say bye-bye in this way without waving at you. I know! We're going to have... Do you think my IOC boyfriend was involved in telling T-Bock not to wave? Because I will break up with him for that. I don't know, but I wonder if it's a whole different generation who doesn't have kids, who haven't been to kids' school programs and waved at their children. But, you know, you're, you're at a school program, and you see your child on stage, and you just wave to them so that they know you're there. I waved at Lauren when she was doing the... <laughs> when she I was know. walking in a Pyeongchang. I couldn't help myself. I was like, Lauren Gibbs, I've seen you. It's like, I'm waving at my television. So I'm sorry, whoever told T-Bock he should not wave, needs a talking to. Exactly. And it's not old-fashioned. I don't care if we're much older than the communications people who said this. 
I don't want to say flunkies, but I might say flunkies. How dare they? How dare they? Darn millennials. Ruining our fun. T-Bock, you can wave at us any time. And we'll even wave back. That's right. We're old-fashioned that way. And old-fashioned is good sometimes. Old school. Right? And if you can't, if, if it's too old-fashioned, just pick up your smartphone and wave your smartphone. And that'll be younger and hipper. Hey, he can even do a duck lips peace sign if he wants to be, you know, vibing with us. <laughs> Is that what the kids these days say? It's what the kids say. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's a vibe. <laughs> T-Bock, that would be lit. <laughs> can you see T-Bock on TikTok? <laughs> he would be fantastic on TikTok, doing the little TikTok dances. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Doing the shoe challenge where it's like he throws his shoe up in the air and suddenly he's in like the national costume of the various countries. We got that one for you, too. That's free advice. T-Bock on TikTok. I mean, he's even got the name of his channel all set. Right. Hmm. T-Bock IOC. And then he just would do videos of him waving. And then that would be young and hip because you know who else would wave? Everybody. Because T-Bock's that kind of trendsetter. He is. Oh, my God. Waving is old fashioned. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure that everybody younger than us is going, y y you know, they're right. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> IOC. Right. Wait, no. Waving. Not old fashioned. Old school. Old school. <sighs> yeah. Well, on that note. And just so all the listeners know, we're waving at you. Right? Because we're going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what questions you have about prosthetics and parasports. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll be back with Hori Gabation, Armenia's first female Olympic gymnast, as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Don't be all fancy.